This week on the Science of Politics, how online media polarizes us but can encourage voting. For the Discannon Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Online politics and social media are being blamed for a lot lately, from the spread of misinformation to the rise of incivility. But we also want online media to reach young people and increase interest and participation. Today, we'll look at two cutting-edge studies on whether Facebook polarizes us and whether online ads can move voters. Although early studies showed limited effects, the latest efforts show the online world is impacting the offline. I talked to Jamie Settle of William & Mary about her new Cambridge University Press book, Frenemies, How Social Media Polarizes America. She finds that Facebook does increase our negative views of the other side, not because we talk a lot about politics directly, but because we consider a wide variety of social media activity as indicative of our friends' politics and come to see them as caricatures. But can any good come of online media? I also talked to Katherine Henshin of Virginia Tech about her new political communication article with Jay Jennings, Mobilizing Millennial Voters with Targeted Internet Advertisements. She finds that online banner and video ads can encourage young people to vote in local elections, perhaps reaching new voters. Both scholars started from some frustration with how little we know about online influence. After looking at limited available data, Settle stepped back to think harder and even learned from her students. I was working on a paper that was using 100 million status updates that had been posted during the 2008 election. And it was a really, really cool set of data. We were looking at the emotion and how people were talking about politics and if people were talking more frequently and more emotionally online in battleground states compared to blackout states. And I'm all excited. I'm sending this paper out for review, hoping to get it published. And it just keeps getting you know, rejected, rejected over and over over and over again. And, you know, the proverbial reviewer too kept saying, it's not clear what people are doing when they are talking about politics on Facebook. What does it mean to post a status update? How are we supposed to interpret that behavior? And the reviewers were right that in that paper, there was not the space to really theoretically develop this idea of behavior on social media, but we didn't really know what people were doing. And that's the void that I wanted to fill. I wanted to take a step back and and think, start from the building blocks and think about what behavior on Facebook actually meant, um, what that meant about behavior on social media more generally, and, and to start from there and then derive expectations about what the outcomes of that behavior might be. So that was the starting point. That was many years ago. Uh, it was a process to, to get to the point where I actually knew what my research question was and, and had figured out how I wanted to measure it and test it. I think that what really kept me going was the sustained interest of my students and the puzzles we kept uncovering as, as we talked about it. So my students were fantastic because they're such a reality check and they are always using new and, and diff- new forms of social media and doing different things on the form of social media that I do use. And so it was great to have to explain myself and and defend my choices to them because they asked such interesting questions. One of the things we also that just came up in a class uh, that I was teaching about this topic, um, this idea of what does it even mean to be political on social media and, and is part of what's going on this this lack of understanding about um, what what people are talking about or what people are doing that might signal their political views. Henshin first got involved as a campaign practitioner and then out of concern for low participation and what could be done about it. 
Sure. So I, before I earned my PhD, I worked on political campaigns in Austin, Texas for about five or six years. And I managed citywide municipal elections and voter registration drives and a coordinated campaign, a county bond campaign, all sorts of local races. And, you know, it's true that in a lot of these local races, turnout is really, really low, right? We're talking about less than 10% of voters show up for some of these races. So flash forward a few years, I got my doctorate at the University of Texas and became involved with folks at the and at Strauss Institute. And at the same time, a set of researchers out, out in Oregon were looking at rates of turnout in municipal elections and found Dallas to be among the worst nationally. They have some of the lowest turnout in the country. Part of that is because they hold their elections on a Saturday in May. And I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly thinking about voting on the first or second Saturday in May. So there are a bunch of structural factors as well that I think were not good for turnout. But Dallas Dallas civic leaders saw this report talking about how they were at the bottom of turnout, that young people in particular, you know, less than 2% of young people voted in Dallas in the previous municipal election. So the civic leaders grew concerned and approached the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life at the University of Texas and said, well, what can you do about this? And so uh, this is where I got involved as someone who does experiments and does research around both young voters, digital media and voter turnout and designed this experiment. And then uh, Jay Jennings, who's a postdoc there at the, the research center, became involved in the project as well. So we worked with the Dallas Morning News. Their publisher was one of the people concerned about low turnout generally. You know, it's not a good marker of civic health. And we proposed this banner ad study for a few reasons. One is they wanted to target young people. And we know that from prior research, we know that younger people are more difficult to reach uh, via the phone or at the door, right? They move around a lot. We also knew that amongst young people, there's, you know, near universal rates of internet adoption. So we thought, well, let's try to target young people online. That's where we'll be able to find them. And I was aware of the cookie targeted ad technology. So I thought this was a great chance to try cookie targeted ads targeted at young voters in an experimental setting in an election. So it was kind of a confluence of lots of worthwhile things to investigate. In a lot of ways, we're still flying blind about the impacts of online media. Settle says we're seeing increasing social media criticism. It's a dozen different factors, and it's not just about politics even, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of recognition that people are are not happy with how frequently they're using the site. I mean, if you Google sort of, you know, Facebook detox, you get all sorts of results. And so I think people are questioning the value of social media in their day-to-day lives. I think people are tired about a, a lot of exposure to advertising. I think all of the privacy concerns, all of that stuff was there before even the revelations of the 2016 election. And so I, I think all of these things are compounding on top of one another. And in many ways, we're, we're forgetting what it was like before social media existed before Facebook. And we've come to take for granted many of the benefits that social media does provide to us. And Hinchin says candidates are trying everything to reach voters, even though it's not clear how well it will all work. Candidates, you know, it's a way to talk to voters. And if the other guy's doing it, you better be doing it as well. I think there's a certain element of that. You don't want to not be communicating in a space. Also, online ads are pretty cheap. Ads on Facebook, even these with cookie targeted banner ads, this wasn't incredibly expensive per se. So it's something that is perceived to be affordable. They're easy to set up. So 
it's not a surprise that they've become really popular. And we know that now, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on online ads during campaign seasons. But uh, before this, there wasn't a lot of empirical academic evidence that they worked. So I think before it was a question of perhaps consultants and strategists saying, well, this is something that you should be doing because you do want to be communicating in that space. We just weren't necessarily sure what it was doing, if it was moving the needle on anything. Plenty of other evidence that online ads don't impact name ID or candidate favorability uh, or may not be able to persuade people to vote for one candidate over another or change issue uh, attitudes on issues. So there's still a lot of research that can be done to figure out what digital ads can and can't necessarily do. Let's dig into the new evidence, starting with Settle's book, Frenemies. She finds lots of disguised politics on Facebook and several potential impacts on our political views. The most important thing I found was that people are sending and receiving signals about their political views and their identity, probably without even realizing it, and definitely even if they don't think they're posting about politics. And there's something about the way that our culture and our politics have aligned in America that even when people are posting about mundane details of their life, they're actually communicating information about their political identity. I think there are two other things that are really important to keep in mind that make political communication on social media different. One is what I call the fly on the wall effect. And so what happens on Facebook and other social media platforms is that you have the ability to watch a group of people that you disagree with them, but they all agree with one another. So you get to be a fly on the wall. You get to watch them talk about politics in a way that really just can't happen in face-to-face interaction. In a face-to-face conversation, your whole presence would change that very interaction. And so the fly on the wall effect, I think, is what allows us this window into how the other side thinks about politics. And and I can talk about more why that's polarizing. I think the second thing is this idea of the importance of the weak ties in our network. So on Facebook, we have hundreds and hundreds of friends, and we tend to know the political views of the people that we're closest to, where there's room to learn about other people's political views are on these weak ties, the people we don't know very well, the people we met in passing at a party or a professional event, or the friends of our friends. And these people play a really important disproportionate role in, in shaping our ideas about what the other side thinks and believes. Social media is a big part of the transformation of polarization. It's no longer about policy views per se, but how we see the other side. I think my book is part of a larger shift in terms of how we think about polarization more broadly, not just with respect to social media. So I I do think there's been a movement away from just focusing on the extremity of people's opinions about policy issues and moving more to the idea of effective or psychological polarization. The big unresolved question I see in this debate regarding polarization in social media was whether social media is only serving as an echo chamber or a filter bubble where people are only encountering those they agree with, or whether it was the case, as with the hope when the internet was born, about this idea that people could be more exposed to political diversity and and actually encountering people that they disagreed with. 
And I think my book shows that these are not mutually exclusive possibilities, that both of these things are happening. So it is, in fact, true that most people are friends with those who share their political opinions, and we tend to interact more with like-minded others. But what's unique about social media is that you are exposed to more diverse opinions than you would be in your day-to-day offline world. But the way in which you're exposed to them is not an ideal way way to build tolerance or understanding or appreciation for their views, they, that social media fosters these interactions that tend to be polarizing. Despite what you sometimes hear, nearly everyone is still on Facebook and it matters. The narrative right now is these concerns about whether or not Facebook is losing its predominant role as uh, the social media platform of choice for the American public. But that narrative is is really blown out of proportion. Uh, The Pew Internet and American Life Project just came out with their latest statistics. Within this past week, they find that 68% of all American adults use Facebook. That's an even higher number if you focus on American adults who have internet access. It's about 80% of American adults with internet access who have a Facebook account. Among all of those people who use Facebook, three quarters of people say they visit the site at least once a day, and about half say they visit several times a day. So Facebook has become interwoven into our day-to-day lives. And and yes, I think it's reasonable to question moving forward whether it's going to remain the platform of choice, but to date it has been and and still is where most Americans are uh, living their their online lives. Um, It's also an incredibly important place for news consumption. Uh, I think it's over 40% of Americans who say they turn to Facebook for news. And so it's, I think the way that people use Facebook as well is kind of short bursts of activity interspersed throughout their day while they're waiting in line or killing time between activities or right before they go to bed. That means that people are regularly getting dosed and exposed to social media. Settle found a lot of content is considered political by users, reinforcing our partisan stereotypes. As political scientists and particularly political behavior scholars, we have overlooked to a certain extent what we actually mean when we think about people talking about politics. It's it's not very clear what we have in mind when we are describing or trying to measure people um, being political. And the results that I have suggest that people conceptualize political as being much broader than just policy or what's happening on Capitol Hill, that people are very sensitive to the politicization of our culture and that there are many different things that might send some notion that a person is is intending to be political. So for example, I look at the story of Chick-fil-A as an example, and and it's now been several years, but Chick-fil-A was in the news because of political donations and and statements that its owners had made in relation to gay marriage. And there was a large movement on the left to essentially boycott Chick-fil-A because of the content of the owner's beliefs. And then there was an equally large movement among the right to try to support Chick-fil-A to say either that I support what Chick-fil-A believes or that Chick-fil-A has the right to, to fund whatever it wants to fund. Chick-fil-A, just going now, saying that you are going to have lunch at Chick-fil-A can become a loaded, politicized statement, right? If you say, I I went and had Chick-fil-A, but I feel so guilty doing so, 
some people could interpret that to mean that you feel guilty supporting a company that advocates for for what they do. And so things like that are have the potential to um, signal the content of your political views, even if you were mostly just trying to communicate about what you had for lunch. I think another example has to do with the way that we have um, sorted our, our social and political lives and the associations that we have come to make about kind of what goes with what in our society. For example, someone who posts a picture with in front of their Prius and what they write with it is, you know, just went to the farmer's market and got the best looking fresh organic produce. Most people are going to associate that that person is more likely to be a liberal or more likely to be a Democrat. Another example on the other side, someone goes to a country music concert and posts a picture in front of their truck at the country music concert. Um, Those two things, pickup trucks and country music, have come to be associated with conservatives and with Republicans. And so we're actually doing a lot to send signals, even if the content of what we say has nothing to do with politics per se. Another interesting finding I had is that simply attaching the banner of a news source that has an ideological leaning, so for example, Fox News or Huffington Post, simply posting a story from one of those sites makes people more likely to think that the story is political. And people are more likely to evaluate the person who posted that story as leaning to the ideological side of the spectrum that the source finds itself on. So I did a study where I took a bunch of different news stories and I had a treatment group where I put on a Fox News header on top of it and then an identical set of news stories, but I put a Huffington Post banner on top of them. And when you compare the evaluations that the subjects in my study made, those who saw the news story that had the Fox News header, 50% of those evaluations thought that the person who posted it was Republican compared to only 38% in the condition where they saw that story with the Huffington Post banner. So because people have come to recognize that there are ideological leanings among our media sources, they then also ascribe those ideologies to the people who, who read and post from those sites. She says it's one factor that furthers the identity focus of our politics and its move beyond elections to everyday life. Brought about this change and that we used to be more into policy and now social media has made us care only about these identities. It's certainly always been a factor and I think the the broader polarizing forces in society more generally have reactivated many of these notions of social identity. So in that sense, social media is not the root of the problem, but I certainly think it exacerbates it in a way that is that is unique and problematic. I think that social media is a really, really good platform, either in a platform for interpersonal interactions or a media platform for spreading these identity-based aspects of politics. I think that it that social media it's and it's It's not just elections anymore, for example. I think you've always seen a bit of an ebb and a flow where people tune in a bit more in advance of elections and and then tune out. I think social media has kept that level of being somewhat attuned to politics. People are having a harder time distancing themselves from it between elections. Regardless of whether people intend to be political, they're now sending political messages. 
I don't have the answer for whether people are doing this intentionally or obliviously. Uh, I think it's a question that definitely merits future study. One thing I am confident in saying is that silence in the face of political controversy is now meaningful. And so if you are an active social media user and you are regularly posting about your life and what's going on in the world and you don't comment on something, that's telling in and of itself. And so I think to the extent that there's now perhaps a social cost for staying quiet, people may be more likely to speak up. But I think that a lot of this has to do with the validation we get from others for expressing our own political views. And so people may be more willing to toe that line, to to say what they were going to say, but inject an element of political humor or political commentary if they feel like they get more positive feedback from their friends on the site when they do so. But we need to look beyond what people are actually posting and commenting on because they're spending a lot of time just browsing, and that matters too. I do think there's an overemphasis on active behaviors and or behaviors that we can more easily measure, such as people posting or commenting or even clicking on stories. The problem with only studying that form of active engagement is that we know the people who are doing those things with respect to politics are already those who are most interested in politics and are the strongest partisans. And so we already know that they're more likely to be polarized and it's it's less clear what room there is for further polarization. I think in this instance, comparing social media to cable news is really interesting. So Vin Arsenault and Martin Johnson find in their book that came out several years ago, Changing Minds or Changing Channels, that the people who have the strongest reaction to cable news are those who are least likely to watch it. And that's not the case on social media. The people who would ordinarily opt out of being exposed to politics don't have anywhere else to go. They're choosing to be on Facebook and they're getting exposed to politics intermingled with the reasons they came to the site for the first place, keeping up with their friends and families. And so in many ways, it's the same kind of argument as as soft news or entertainment news, but people are dosing themselves multiple times a day. And that, that dosing behavior, that passive exposure, that scrolling through the newsfeed, that's what people are doing most of the time when they're on social media. And if we don't find a good way to measure that and capture that behavior, I think we are we're we're picking the low-hanging fruit, right? We're saying, well, what can we measure as social scientists and let's shine our flashlight there. And I don't think that's the way we should proceed. I think we should think about how is it that people are using the technology and then figure out what sorts of expectations we would imagine we should see based on that. Settle knows social media is by no means the only factor increasing polarization, but she says it affects different people and is more focused on how we see each other. Many of the things that make social media polarizing are in fact contingent on the presence of these other factors, such as having polarized elites, such as having a very partisan media, for example. One thing to think about is that 
many of these other forces have found ways to weave themselves into social media. So cable news has a presence on social media. There are clips of MSNBC that circulate and, and there are ways to get stories from those sites. And social media has a presence on cable news. You'll hear the anchors reporting what, what viewers are saying on the social media sites. There's not been a lot of academic work at their intersection, but we should remember that these are not independent media ecosystems, right? They're all inter weaving with one another. And so I think those of us who are looking at whether or not social media is polarizing are looking for the unique contributions of using social media to become more polarized. And, and this is where I think social media matters in that it affects a different set of people and it tends to affect those people who aren't all that interested in politics and probably aren't exposed to many of the other polarizing influences such as, you know, whether it's negative campaign commercials or elite rhetoric or cable news, you know, the people who try to stay away from all that, they're not staying away from social media. And so whatever's going on there, they're going to be influenced in a way they might not with these other sorts of offline experiences. I think the other thing is that social media is really well suited for effective and, and psychological polarization. It's certainly possible that these other influences, you know, I'll pick on cable news, for example, it's possible that cable news definitely contributes to the fact that you really, really dislike, you know, Hillary Clinton. I buy that. That makes a lot of sense to me. What I don't buy is that cable news is especially well suited for making you dislike your neighbor who has a Hillary Clinton yard sign out. Right. And that's where I think social media is really useful. Social media introduces you to the friends of your friends. And this is the intermediate level where these are actual individuals. You get to see what actual Americans are thinking and believing and doing, but you don't have any other information about them to contextualize their viewpoints. And so social media is really good for helping you kind of move from that abstract notion that I don't like the Democratic Party to I don't like Democrats because I see them say all of this crazy stuff on social media. But what about the potential for online information to mobilize us to participate more in politics? That's the focus of the new work from Jennings and Henshin. They find that online ads can mobilize. Lots of people talk about online advertising, but this is the first study that was able to actually show that these ads do anything. So we found that if you are assigned to receive four weeks of internet ads, and these ads are cookie targeted, which means they chase you all over the internet, wherever you happen to be. If you're looking at ESPN or TMZ, our ads followed you around. If you got four weeks of ads, two weeks that emphasized news coverage of the elections in the Dallas Morning News, and two weeks that emphasized high turnout, that you were more likely to vote but only if you lived in a competitive city council district. Uh, the ads did not have an effect on people who lived in uncompetitive uh, or even uncontested districts. So the results show that digital ads can increase turnout, but the effects are small. Even in uh, the districts where they worked, the increase in turnout was only about half of a percent versus a control group. So they can work, but the effects are small. Hinchin says previous efforts showed limited effects, but theirs was long-term and voter-targeted. 
There were studies that used Facebook ads to raise name ID or favorability. Those were not able to show any significant results. Experiments that used Facebook ads to try and increase voter turnout, those do not appear to have uh, shown what we would think of as a main effect or an effect across the board for people in the experiment. Same thing with uh, individually targeted banner ads trying to change attitudes on a social issue. There was no evidence of an effect. So this study is the first that was able to show evidence of an effect, I think, because A, we had a very large sample size. We had 74,000 registered voters in Dallas, aged 23 to 35. We used cookie targeting. So the ads went to the specific voter that we wanted to target. Prior studies used cluster targeting or geographic-based cluster targeting. This study used banner ads, a large scale targeted to specific voters. And then we also tested the ads over a decent duration of time. There were two different ad conditions, information ads and uh, voting reminder ads. And some subjects got a full two weeks of inter- of information ads followed by two weeks of get out the vote voting reminder ads, right? So we saw the effect amongst the folks that had the four full weeks of ads. So I think the last thing I'll note is that in our experiment, the subjects were capped at uh, three banner ad impressions per day and one pre-roll video ad per day. So we were only giving people four ads at most per day. Even if you got four ads over uh, four weeks, we're still not talking about four ads a day over four weeks. We're still not talking about a huge number of ads. Uh, so where I think we need to go with this is to look at you know how much does duration matter? How much does frequency we were able to get this to work with uh, the messages that we used, but probably other messages are effective as well. Uh, is it just four weeks of ads that does it? And it doesn't matter what the message is, right? These are all questions that I think we can go from here. And I hope that because we were able to show an effect, other scholars will uh, do more work in this area to start to answer some of those questions, which is useful for our understanding, but also I think useful to practitioners to understand how much and when they should be buying these ads. The context was school board and city council elections in Dallas, where normally few bother to vote. In 2017, when we ran our experiment, the mayor was not on the ballot. He was had just been reelected two years prior. And so all 14 seats, though all of the 14 single member district seats were on the ballot. Several of those races were uncontested. The incumbent ran without any challenger. And then a number were what we would deem uncompetitive. And we did we deemed that based on uh, news coverage, what news coverage had to say about um, uh the races locally. Addition to that, in Texas, the school board members of your local public school district are elected as well. So there were several overlapping school board races, all of which were competitive. So what we did was we looked at, you know, basically whether a race was competitive or not when we did our analysis. And turnout, again, turnout was not particularly high across all of Dallas, but the entire city forced 47,901 ballots were cast, which was equal to 7.6% turnout. Within our study, our control group voted at about, I believe, 5.5% turnouts. So one thing that I want to point out is that, you know, Folks like to give young voters a bad name for not voting in these local elections. But if citywide turnout is 7.6%, let's be honest, nobody's voting in these elections, whether you're younger or older. They identified what young people said they needed to vote and provided it in a sustained ad campaign. So we had a set of ads that was focused on promoting the Dallas Morning News 
their own coverage of the local elections. And if you clicked the ads, they would take you to a page on the Dallas Morning News website where you could see all the articles about the city council school board races. Then we had a set of voting reminder ads that showed lots of, uh, you know, cute little animated figures uh, rushing into the, the screen to spell out the word vote. And then it emphasized basically, you know, everyone's doing it, go vote. So we thought that we would see if either of the, by addressing either or both of those stated needs, did we increase turnout. Now, to actually run the experiment, we partnered with a, a company called Audience Partners. They have experience in cookie targeting. We solicited bids from numbers a number of different vendors, but we went with Audience Partners because they had the ability to target the largest sample size. And we'd done a power analysis ahead of time to figure out essentially how many people needed to be in the study, et cetera, et cetera. So we targeted every Dallas voter age 23 to 35 who was registered in one of the Dallas single member municipal districts who'd voted in anything in 2015, uh, 2016 or 2014, right? So we wanted to sort of mirror the, the targeting that the focus group by the Knight Foundation. So we sent our... We took the voter file, created our lists, and randomly assigned people to groups. And then we set our four separate groups, our control, our info ad only, our reminder ad only, and our both ads groups to audience partners. They then worked with a vendor to match those lists to the cookie database and reported back the rate at which each group matched. And it was about 57%. So we, due to privacy laws, we weren't able to know which of the 57% of subjects did match. So we did the analysis at the level of assignment to treatment. So they had the ad creative, they had the lists of targets, so they set up the ads, the ads ran for four weeks, and then we waited for the update for the voter file, and then we did our analysis. One thing I'll note is, as I said, since only 57% of our subjects in each condition were able to be matched, we can take our effect size, which is about 0.52%, that's the increase in turnout from the control group to the treatment group that got four weeks of ads and both types of ads. And we can divide that by 57% and estimate what the true effect would be if everybody got all of the ads. And that would be about 0.9%, right? So we think that if this technique was carried out broadly on people you know, across the board and they saw the ads, the impact on turnout would be an increase of about 0.9%. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but that is on par with what campaigns are getting on average from live telephone voting reminder programs and is more than the Facebook widget that was used in 2010 and 2012, you know, showing that your friends are voting and asking you to click, you know, I voted sort of thing. This was a larger effect than that. I think the effects show that this is something that can work. But again, you know, this isn't going to be some silver bullet that gets people to storm out to the polls. But the only thing that worked was the combination of both messages over a full four week campaign following them around the web as they browsed. So we were surprised by the result. We thought that, you know, in the face of, you know, 5% turnout, surely doing anything to the voters is going to improve things, right? So we were really surprised that the information ads alone didn't do anything. The voting reminder ads, it's, you know, higher, but not statistically significantly so. I, so I think what we're seeing here is potentially the combination of two weeks of ads plus 
both messages, right? So perhaps that increased awareness, if we think about it, potentially increasing voters' knowledge that an election is going on, potentially. But, you know, essentially, I think the folks in the condition that showed an effect, they had four weeks to potentially consume some information, find out that they were in a competitive district, find out about the candidates, get reminded to vote, get our social norm reminder. So if you think about it, the folks where we saw the significant increase had all of the things millennials said they needed, right? Information and uh, perception that other people were voting. And then, you know, we get into the competitiveness issue. And competitiveness still matters. It didn't work for voters who were not facing a real choice. It's not a big surprise that if you spend four weeks and a bunch of money telling people their city council members unopposed, that they don't go vote, right? When I say it that way, it's kind of like, oh, well, yeah, why would you bother, right? And so if people in the condition that got four weeks worth of ads in uncompetitive districts, you know, they didn't have a statistically lower rate of turnout, but it, it was definitely heading in that direction. And so what I think this suggests is just because you tell people there's an election going on and just because you tell people that turnout is high and whatnot, if they find out that their election is essentially a foregone conclusion, why would they incur the costs of voting? So I think this is something that folks who want to increase turnout need to think about more broadly. And so this is where I think the civic leaders need to think about the fact that, you know, you may be happy with an incumbent. And you may have no desire to see someone get challenged, but that means you're going to see lower turnout. Uh, People don't show up for snooze fest elections. So part of what I think this speaks to is the need to have robust, competitive elections in which there are, you know, where in which the voters have an actual choice. Although the effects Hinchin found were small, they were comparable to other campaign efforts. The effects we got are about on par with meta-analyses of phone calling programs. There's also some evidence that this is about on par with sort of nonpartisan direct mail that doesn't have a social pressure component. So what there are other tactics that campaigns are doing and doing in great, uh, you know, in great amount that are only going to increase turnout about 1%. So this fits in that, that pool. And so what I think is worth considering is that every campaign tactic, you know, can be used in an optimal manner, right? Uh, there's, you know, you wouldn't necessarily necessarily send a canvasser out to a rural area where there's five miles between houses. That might not be the most efficient use of that person's time. So just as we think of strategically about which voters we want to canvas and which voters we want to call on the phone, I think what this shows is that you can take that pool of voters who might otherwise be unreachable. Maybe they live in a gated community and you don't have a good phone number for them that this might be a universe to try and approach with individually targeted internet ads so that you still have a chance of communicating with those exact people. And since you know you're talking to only those people, you know, you can spend a little bit more money because you're doing it in a highly targeted manner. But Hinchin agrees that impersonal ads are not as effective as those based on peer-to-peer sharing in social networks. 
So I've done a number of experiments in which Facebook users have tagged their friends in social pressure messages, reminding them to vote. And in those studies, we see huge effects, you know, 10, 20% increases in turnout. We also know from other research, uh, Letitia Bode's research comes to mind that within Facebook, things that come from your friends are more influential than ads. So I think ultimately, yes, the like, peer-to-peer networking-based organizing is going to be the most effective because there's so many layers of you know social ties and the social norm of voting and not wanting to let down this person you care about or not wanting them to think poorly of you. That those things are you know essentially triggered in the peer-to-peer mobilization type work that is, you know, it's becoming increasingly popular, uh, you know, friend to friend mobilization. And there's a number of tools that are being developed to facilitate that kind of work versus an advertisement. You know, we see thousands of ads on the internet every month. So, you know, what I think is interesting about our study is we were able to show people a very small overall share of their ads and change behavior from it. You know, it is possible for ads to do something. It's in no way as effective as uh, friend to friend mobilization. Now that said, it's very difficult to recruit people to mobilize their friends. And I know from some of my own prior research that the message you use in mobilizing your friends does matter. So if you're a campaign and you have limited time, advertising (laughs) can be more accessible than investing in an incredibly logistically difficult online organizing campaign. And Settle agrees, whether it's ads or organic content, it's those social aspects of social media and how people see them where we need to know more. It's early in the study of these multiple forms of content on social media. And I hope that we pursue lots of different lines of inquiry at once. I will say that I think two things are important to focus on. So one is that we can't forget the social network aspects of social media sites. And this is in part why advertisers got so excited about sites like Facebook in the first place is because they wanted to harness these social networks for advertising purposes. Um, We know that in, at least in the offline mobilization literature, for example, that a request to vote, an encouragement to vote works much better if you're encouraging people that you actually know or if you're able to, to establish some sort of connection or shared identity. When we look at social media and look at the forms of content that have the potential to be most influential, I think we need to focus on the the origin, right? And I think that anything that comes from someone we know is, is sent to us based on one of our social connections has a lot more potential for influence. Um, we found this in a study we did about the um, 2010 midterm election and ended a big mobilization experiment on Facebook. And we found that the messages that had information about someone's social network were much more impactful than mobilization messages that provided information alone. So when we think about whether it's going to be explicit advertising on the side of the Facebook feed or interwoven into the Facebook feed, we really need to think about 
how people are, are processing content on Facebook and they're very much looking for that social connection and they're going to process content that comes from third parties in very different ways than they are content that comes from someone that they know and, and are more likely to trust. So I think that's one big piece, keeping the social network aspect in mind. I think the second thing to keep in mind is the idea of digital literacy. I hadn't thought much about this. I started talking with Kevin Munger, who has thought a lot about this. And those of us who use the internet and use computers frequently as part of our daily lives forget that that's not how most people are spending their time. And digital literacy is going to be really connected to all the ways that people engage with content on Facebook. And it Digital literacy is correlated with things like um, age, for example, or education level, but it's not perfectly correlated. And so if we really want to understand how people are responding to this total mishmash of content that they're exposed to on a social media site, we need to better understand what they think about it. And so that's going to be related to um, their understanding and, and their comfort and usage of these various different types of sites. So is all this just social signaling? Maybe, but Settle recommends that we share more online to give people a broader sense of ourselves. I think one way to read my findings is as a form of, of validation for the way perhaps we're all trying to social signal with what we say about politics on social media and, and that this is contributing to this idea of some sort of call-out culture. But I actually prefer another interpretation. One of the things coming out of my research when I think about how to solve this problem would be to encourage people to post a lot more, both about their social lives and their political views. The problem is that we have all of these associations in our mind between what kinds of people believe what kinds of political things and do what sorts of social things. But we don't realize how weak many of those associations actually are. And so if people posted more, posted more about the specifics and nuances of their political views and posted more about what they did on a day, out, day in, day out basis, I think we would make that signal much noisier. And if we can make a noisier signal that's linking our cultural preferences and, and political opinions, I think that could help lower this amount of perceived polarization. I really do believe that there are lots of kale-eating conservatives out there and, and gun-owning liberals. I will say that I think what comes out in part of my findings is this idea of kind of the social bandwagon. And so because of this quantified feedback that we get when we do express our politics, it is possible to get this uh, kind of spiral, right? And to get people very quickly to all coalesce around what they think they're supposed to feel about a particular issue. And Henshin hopes that campaigns see the benefit of targeting some unlikely voters they may not reach elsewhere. We know from research about electoral salience and about voter propensity that basically there's a relationship between the two. The more, the higher salience of an election, the lower propensity voter you can potentially go chase after. And so in this case, we had a very low salience election. So we were chasing after people that had actually voted in things before and were still only able to get, you know, a small share of, of them out to vote. So I think that campaigns should 
think about using their mobilization tactics on people who are less likely to vote. You have limited time and limited resources. Why spend your money on someone who hasn't missed an election in 20 years when you can be spending your money on young people or newly registered voters who no one else might be talking to them? And I think that's where the online ads can be potentially useful because you can, with the cookie targeting, you know, you can take a big pool of your lower propensity voters and target just those people with the online ads. Because Facebook is now partnering with academics more, we should get a lot more data on this soon with potential for improvement. I'm fairly encouraged by the future of research in this area, uh, both because of actions by Facebook, um, but more so because of these initiatives such as Social Science One to to partner uh, academia with industry. Uh, I think it's exceptionally complicated. I think that it's going to be very hard to make sure that all parties are satisfied with with these new research arrangements, but the potential benefit is so enormous to be able to have more academic researchers asking more and better questions using these sorts of data. I think Facebook really is making a commitment to try and fund basic social science research to help them understand some of the processes that uh, that are occurring on their sites. Uh, one of the things I think really matters and one of the directions that I'm headed in with my colleague Taylor Carlson is getting at the actual role of social connections in facilitating or constraining the spread of low quality information. So it's possible to imagine, for example, that um, people are more likely to spread fake news when they're encouraged to do so by their peers. But when you are posting fake news, you also risk this idea of social sanction that you have to know that not everyone in your network believes what you do. And so posting something that may be fake comes with the risk of of someone calling you out on that. So I'm personally really interested in bringing in that idea of the actual value of social relationships and how can we harness the relationships that people have on these sites to help incentivize the behaviors that are going to be better for our democracy. Hinchin says there's a lot more to look at, including ads with other messages, contexts, and goals, but we should be prepared to see small, not revolutionary effects beyond the explicit mobilization. What about issue-oriented communication? If you think back to you know the Russian interference in 2016 was alleged to consist of, a lot of it was around more issue-oriented pages. And so what happens when you are engaging people with issue-oriented content? How does that change their, their voting behavior? So I think those are some good questions to get at. There's not a lot of evidence that when it works, it creates big effects. So that doesn't mean it doesn't work. But I think people need to calibrate their expectations that it's it's very unlikely that Internet ads alone are doing a lot to change turnout or participation. Where I do think they may have an effect, and this is, I think, interesting question you know, for future research for lots of people is that does exposure to these ads online generally make people more aware of an election such that they're more capable of being persuaded or mobilized through traditional means like canvassing? Uh, Does it basically, can we use internet advertising to essentially prime people to be aware of the election, thus making them better target for any sort of organizing effort? That's where I think 
we can answer a lot of questions, not just about what campaigns are doing and, you know, advocacy groups and whatnot, but also try to understand some of the phenomena from the 2016 election about potentially what the effects were of these different online campaigns and online, you know, not just accusations for the Russians, but also, you know, the Macedonian teenagers peddling their fake news websites on Facebook and things like that. Uh, I think that is probably going to be a more useful contribution if we can understand how online advertising impacts individuals' overall awareness of, of politics and elections. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Jamie Settle and Catherine Henshin for joining me. Please check out the paper and the new book, Frenemies, and then join us next time. Mm-hmm.